And I want you to know that every one of you here, and even those that may not be here today, I want you to know that you were created to do something wonderful, something significant for God. And a lot of times you may look at yourself and you may say, well, I don't know what I can contribute to the kingdom. I don't know what God is calling me to do. I don't understand maybe. I don't have the abilities or I can't sing or I can't play a guitar or I can't, you know, I'm not a very friendly person. We'll change that. (laughs) God has called you to do something. He's created you to be significant for the kingdom. Amen. And you have a job to do. You have a ministry that God has placed upon your heart. It may be something that you may be thinking, well, man, this isn't much. But can I tell you that there are times that someone will be greeting at the door. And it'll change a person's life that walks through that door. They may be just looking for somebody just to speak to them that day. And yet you took the time to just either extend a hand, shake their hand, open the door for them, say hello, whatever you did. So I want you to know that whatever you do for the kingdom of God, you're doing it for him. Amen? But I believe that when God brought you into this world, he already had a plan for you. Amen? You know, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, think about that, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, I know God was talking to Jeremiah here, but I believe he's talking to us too. I believe he's speaking to us. I believe he's telling us that, look, I knew you when you were in that womb. I had a plan, I had a purpose, I had a place for you, and I knew exactly what you were going to do, at what time you were going to do it, and when you were going to do that. Now last week I read the first several verses from Luke chapter 15, and today we're going to continue with the rest of that chapter. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 15. You know, the chapter began by describing who Jesus was talking to. So I want to read uh, the first couple of verses again just so we kind of get the picture of who Jesus is talking to. And then over the next several minutes, I'm going to break down uh, the story known as the prodigal son. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to go into great details. Matter of fact, if you ever have watched a movie, you know that there are scenes, right? There are scenes in a movie. We're going to break this down into four different scenes, and I'm hoping that maybe you will get a vivid picture of this story and how it's significant to us and what God's wanting to do for us. So look at Luke chapter 15, look at verses 1 and 2 real quickly. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So I want you to understand there's two groups of people right there. There are tax collectors and sinners. They wanted to hear what Jesus was saying. They wanted to hear what Jesus was going to tell them, okay? So they were there for a purpose. Now look at the second group. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here's what I, so imagine with me, I can see Jesus, he's out in the open, he's sitting there, he's talking to a group of tax collectors and what people would consider sinners, Those that didn't have nothing to do with the church, they had nothing to do with the law, they didn't want to, you know, but they knew that there was something different about Jesus and they wanted to hear the words of Jesus. So I believe that those were the people that were right there. 
And then I believe there was this group of religious leaders that was kind of over to the side, just kind of sitting there watching this scene, trying to figure out uh, what Jesus was going to do next. And I could just imagine that they're over here just maybe whispering to each other, look at him. He's sitting there, he's talking to all the sinners, all these tax collectors. Who does he think he is? You know, and they're probably just going on, carrying on a conversation with themselves. They're probably trying to figure out how can we get rid of this guy, you know, because that's all they've done ever since Jesus came on the scene was try to figure out how they could get rid of him. But that's what I imagine. Now, it's important to know who Jesus' audience was as he began to tell these stories, okay? And of the three stories in Luke chapter 15, this third story that we're going to talk about, it's probably the most significant. And today I hope to bring out many details about this story and teach you many things. So let's read it. Luke chapter 15, jump down to verse 11, and I'm going to read through verse 32. It says, Jesus continued. And now remember, he's already told this story about the lost sheep. He's already told the story about the lost coin. And now here's his third story. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out. And go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's making a plan. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, I truly believe that this story will give us a great look at the father more than it will the sons. You know, we know the characters of the story. There's a father and there's two sons. And this story answers the question, well, how does God feel about you? I want you to know God thinks you're special. God thinks you're amazing. God thinks you're awesome. And he believes that you can do greater things than you ever thought that you could imagine for yourself because there is something great about God. And can I tell you right now, God does not make junk, amen? God makes special people, and I want you to know that you are special. But if you were to break up this story, I believe we could break it up into four different scenes. Let's start. Scene one, dividing the property. So, you know, beyond the first sentence, there was a man who had two sons. Jesus, he wastes no time in presenting an unthinkable situation in a Jewish family in which the younger son asked his living father for his share of the inheritance. Now, according to Jewish customs, a man's property was transferred to his heirs only upon death, at which time the oldest son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Now, before the death of the father, the property remained under his control and could neither be subdivided nor sold. Against these practices, the younger son's demand is preposterous. It's offensive, and it's like he is wishing his father dead. Equally odd is the non-resistance of the father, who divided his property between them. And this is what an author, Ken Bailey, wrote about this. He says this, or this is the guy, he's lived in this region of the world for many years, and he said this, For over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. The conversation goes something like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? The answer, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone did, what would happen? The reply was, his father would beat him, of course. And why? This request means he wants his father to die. One Middle Eastern writer, Ibrahim Said, writes, The shepherd in his search for the sheep and the woman in her search for the coin do not do anything out of the ordinary beyond what anyone in their place would do. But the actions the father takes in the third story are unique, marvelous, divine actions which have not been done by any father in the past. You see, the younger son's words are, give me my share of the estate. And to everyone's amazement, this father gives it to him. And then the story goes in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
Now, many think that he got his inheritance and just, and just took off, but he didn't. What does he say? It says, not long after that. In other words, he stuck around for a little bit. But why? Why did he stick around? Well, he had to liquidate his inheritance. If you've ever had anyone that's ever passed, and uh, you, and if, say, a close family member, you know that there are some things that you have to do. You have to get death certificates. You have to go and, and, and make arrangements. You have to, if they have a will, you have to start, you know, maybe go to a lawyer or figure out everything that goes on. And so this is what he's done. He's gotten his inheritance, so now he has to liquidate his inheritance. He had to find a buyer for his portion of the family farm, his portion of the family jewels, his portion of the family livestock. And the only people that he could sell to were other people in the village. So think about it. This, this young son, he's going from door to door, and he is trying to convince people who knew his father to buy a piece of the family property. All these people knew that this boy had insulted his father. He had shamed him, and he had wished him dead. And now he was doing the unthinkable, selling off property and possessions that had been in the family for generations. Everywhere this young man goes, he is greeted with amazement. He's greeted with horror and rejection. The family's estate, it's a significant part of a Middle Easterner's personal identity. As the scorn mounts, he feels more and more pressure to get out of town. Now, as soon as all the negotiations are done and the transaction's completed, the son leaves town and he heads for a faraway country. That brings me to scene number two, the distant country. In this distant land, this wayward son gradually descends into his own personal hell. And I look at what verse 13 says again. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. In other words, he wasted all of it. And the people in that distant country, they know that. They too are unimpressed with this frivolous young man who is now out of money. And the polite way for a Middle Easterner gets to get rid of someone that is not wanted is to assign them a task that they'll refuse. So when the son asks for a job, one of the citizens offers to let him become his pig herder. Now, this is no job for any self-respecting Jewish boy to accept. Pigs are unclean animals. And that was according to the law of Moses. And they had to be fed seven days a week, which meant he couldn't keep the Sabbath. To everyone's surprise, this son accepts the job. But you see, it's a terrible job. It doesn't pay very well. And matter of fact, he's so hungry that he decides that he even wants to eat the pig slop. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen pig slop. And it's not a pretty picture, I promise you. When, we used to, when I used to work at, our, at Arkansas Tech Cafeteria, we would take all of the leftovers that students had eaten. We would put them in buckets, and a guy would come and pick them up and take them and feed his pigs. Already eaten food, whatever was on their plates, dumped all together in one bunch, and they would take it and they would feed the pigs. That's what pig slop. I could tell you some other stories about pig slop, but I won't do that here in this context. I promise you, it's not very 
appeasing. But this guy, he was so desperate and his job was so horrible that he said, I'm going to start eating some pig slop. But as he's in this pig pen, he begins to start thinking to himself. He knows there is no life for him in this distant land. And he thinks, maybe I can go back home and ask for a job as a hired servant. That way, if he works hard and he saves as much as he can, uh, someday maybe he will be able to earn enough to be of some use to his father. So he comes up with a plan. He'll go home. He'll admit he was a fool. And instead of asking to be reinstated as a son, he'll ask to be hired as a servant. The plan has merit, except for one thing. Even if his father accepts him on these terms, he'll have to face the scorn and the wrath of the villagers. Now, how many of you have ever returned home, back to home, to town that you grew up in? And sometimes it's hard to return if you haven't been successful, right? You don't want to go and be in, you know, embarrass yourself or your family or anybody else. But this guy has not only not succeeded, but he is a miserable failure. But his real problem is, how did the villagers feel about him when he left? Think about it. They hated him. He had disgraced them all by wishing that his father was dead, and then again by disposing of the family's property. Adding to this, he lost all his money to despise Gentiles, and the prodigal has no solution for what he's going to do with the villagers when he gets home. He will simply have to endure the mocking, the scorn, the shame that they will give him as he walks through the town on the way to the father's house. Can you just imagine that walk of shame? As he's walking through town, the eyes are just going to glare at How dare you even show your face around here anymore? You're a terrible son. Brings us to scene three, the return home. Up to this point, you haven't seen much of the father. But now you're about to see a lot more of the father in the story. The father, because of his experience, he knows two things. First of all, he knows that the son, given the maturity level and the character with which he left home, he's bound to fail. He knows that if the son ever does come home, it will probably not be as a successful businessman, but more likely as a beggar. Second, the father knows that the village will not treat him well. Since his departure, all the townspeople have told him openly and repeatedly that he should not have granted the inheritance in the first place, that this son is a rascal and he deserves nothing short of death. (laughs) Right? And the father also knows That if his son ever does return, the first person who sees him will quickly pass the word that this pariah has come home and a crowd will gather and likely begin to mock and spit on him, if not hurt him outright. He knows that the son, in order to get home, will have to endure the scorn of the crowd with every step that he takes through the village. So knowing all of this, Look at what the father does in scene number three. The father does five things that would all be considered outrageous in Middle Eastern society. They're all designed to protect and restore this son that he loves so much. And this son who has turned away from him rejected him and wished him for dead. What is the first thing the father does? He runs. 
When word comes to him that his son has been seen on the outskirts of the village, the father runs to him. Can you see why this is so significant? Instead of letting his son run the gauntlet, the father runs the gauntlet for him. It's an outrageous thing he does because a noble man with flowing robes never runs anywhere. He lifts his robe, exposing his ankles, and he runs down the road through the village in front of all the villagers. He humiliates himself. One ancient Jewish writer writes this about running. He says, a man's manner of walking tells you what he is. A modern scholar writes, it is so very undignified in eastern eyes for an elderly man to run. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, said, great men never run in public. But the father does. And Jesus explains why. Look at verse 20. It says, so he got up. And went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You see, the father was filled with compassion for him, and that's how the father feels about his children. He has compassion on us. Remember what I told you last week, that people matter to God? You see, the father deliberately runs through the village. He knows he's creating a spectacle. He knows what he's doing will attract a crowd. He knows they will talk about this hum- his humiliation in the village for the rest of his life. But think about this from the son's perspective. He knows his father lives in the middle of town and that the town hates him. He knows there is no way that he can get to the father without enduring scorn. But he has to get to the father in order to become his servant. So he sets his jaw and he walks walks the last few miles towards the town and sure enough at first sighting on the outskirts of the village word starts spreading people are going to gather he's about to endure the worst moments of his life but as he comes to the edge of the village he expects to see rocks and jeers and angry faces but instead what he sees coming towards him are the ankles of his father to his utter amazement rather than experiencing the ruthless hostility that he deserves for what he's done he finds a visible demonstration of the love of his father you see the father runs and the second thing the father does is he kisses his son It says he had compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Think about it. They're embarrassing. Eye to eye. Or they're embracing. Eye to eye. Shoulder to shoulder. In the son's mind he had pictured himself coming home and abasing himself. First, he'd kiss his father's hand. Then he'd kiss his father's feet. But you see, the father won't let him. He puts his arms around him and he kisses him on both cheeks. The son can't bend and he can't stoop. All he can do is accept this love. The Greek word used here to describe what the father does is kataphilu. It literally means to kiss again and again. Now put yourself in this scene. You have wronged God and you know it. You know you're going to need to grovel, admit wrong, and make all sorts of promises and really mean it. So you approach him and you've got your whole speech planned. Only he doesn't even let you begin. The minute you approach him, he embraces you. Look at the son's planned out speech. This is what he says. In verses 18 and 19, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, his plan is to admit his guilt, 
to ask to become a servant in his father's household. Now look at what actually happens in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you notice that his request to become a servant is missing? That's because the son is so overwhelmed by the father's love. His plan was to earn his way back into his father's favor. He never intended to ask his father to accept him back just as he was. How could he do that? But when the father runs and kisses him, how could he not accept the father's love for a son? You see, the third thing the father does is he calls for a robe to be put on his son. Imagine this. There's exact words in verse 22. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. We need to understand something. It was the father that owned the best robe in the family. The father and son are still standing on the edge of the village, and the father wants the whole village to know that he has accepted his son. So he sends his servants to get his own best robe so the son can wear it as he walks home through the village. And the fourth thing the father does is he calls for a ring. He said, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. The ring, it's probably a signet ring. It's the ring the father would use to sign all documents, which means the son is a trusted, empowered member of the family. The sandals are a sign that he is a free man, not a servant. Servants didn't get shoes. They walked barefooted. And finally, the father says, look at verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate Not the fatted goat or sheep or chicken, the fatted calf. The calf was used because that meant the whole village was invited to this feast. Do you see what the father's doing? He invited the whole village to share his joy. He doesn't want the son only to be reconciled to him. He wants him to be reconciled to the whole village. He wants everyone to have a relationship with his son. One, one commentator writes, for Palestinian listeners, initially the father would naturally be a symbol of God. Then as the story progresses, the father come down out of the house and in a dramatic act demonstrates unexpected love uh, publicly in humiliation. You see, this story is like a rags to riches type story. Only the riches is not about money. They're about measuring your worth in God's eyes. Jesus is speaking to anyone that has ever wanted to take a step toward God. He lets us know just how God feels about us. He doesn't just wait for us. He runs to us. He doesn't let us bear the shame of living our lives as if we wished we were dead. He bears it for us. He kisses us. He puts his robe on us, his, his ring on our finger, his sandals on our feet, and he kills the fatted calf to celebrate us, and he invites everyone else to celebrate us with him. Now let's look at this last scene, scene number four. It's the older son. You see, the older son, he's, he's never left home. But if you read the story carefully, you'll discover that he too has left the father. As the scene opens, where is the older son? He's out working the field. At the beginning of the story, notice there are two mentions of the older son. Luke, 15, or Luke chapter 15, 11, and 12. It says, there was a man who had two sons. That's the first mention. The younger one said, 
uh, to his father, Father, give me my share of the state. And look at this. The second, uh, what he said, so he divided his property between them. In other words, the son, both sons, got their inheritance. So the other son owns everything that he and his father now live on. It belongs to him. As the older son is coming in from the fields, he hears music and he gets the report from one of the servants that his brother has returned home safely and that a party is going on. Well, this infuriates the older brother. He becomes so angry at this. He refuses to join the party. And you see this right here, refusing to join the party, this would be a severe insult to his father. It would humiliate him a second time in front of the whole village because the older son's role at a party was to welcome all the guests. And with him not at the party, everybody knows that he has rejected his father. And if you read farther in the story, you will see that the older son has distanced himself as much from his father as the younger son. Look at verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders that you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. First of all, he doesn't think of himself as a son. Did you notice what he said? He says, I've been slaving for you. He hasn't lived with him like a son, but like a servant. And this is the very thing the younger son had decided was the best that he could do after he had shamed his father. Secondly, he's mad because the father had never given him an animal to throw a party with his friends. Notice that in his mind, his friends are not the father's friends. He doesn't want to party with his dad or be friends with his friends. He developed his own relational web and the father has nothing to do with it. The truly sad and amazing thing about the older son, though, is he felt deprived by the father because the father had never given him anything, no calf, no chicken, not even a goat. But what happened when the younger son left? The old son got his share of the inheritance too. Now look at verse 31 again. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, the older son has distanced himself and he refused to join his father at the party. So what does the father do? The same thing he did for his younger son. He humiliates himself by leaving the party and going out to his older son. Now when you look at this story, Jesus tells the story of two sons. You have the beginning, the middle, and the ending of the younger son's story. Just like every story. If you look at the older son's story, you have a beginning, the middle, but you don't have an ending. We are not told what the older son does. I believe that Jesus is doing something very deliberate with this story. There's a lack of resolve. In the first story, the son is far off, but in the end, he is found. In the second story, the son is far off, but but in the end, what does he do? And that's the question that Jesus poses to the Pharisees after telling them about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Clearly in their minds, they were the older sons. They were the ones who had stayed around, tried to obey, served God like slaves, but in their hearts, they were far off. They didn't want to come to the party and celebrate the return of wayward sons who squandered their living in foreign lands. They didn't want to be near the father. Jesus is saying the younger son understands and accepts 
that he was far off and has been found. He admits he was lost. The father comes out to him and outrageously welcomes him back into the home. The older son is far off too. He's proud because he knows he's not really all that bad of a guy. He's mad at the father, so he refuses to come in. The father comes out to him in just as much humiliation as he comes out to his younger son. He talks about rejoicing and asks the son to come in. Does the son come in? Do you come in? The point of this story is that the father loves all his children so much that he's willing to suffer and be humiliated in order to bring us home. The question is, can you relate to one of these sons? Have you wandered away from the faith and you realize that you would rather spend time walking with Jesus and wandering out than, than wandering out in the world lost with no hope? Or maybe you're the second son that has worked so hard for the kingdom that it seems unfair that someone comes and gets saved and there is much rejoicing over that person that hasn't lived their life like you. So why should they deserve the party? The truth is, God loves us all. God loves everyone. He loves the person that's been going to church all his life. They can quote the Bible forward and backwards, but he also loves a person that's lost and doesn't think he is lost. He thinks he's having a good time. He wants nothing to do with God, and God loves them too. You see, God loves your worst enemy. He loves your best friend. People matter to God, and therefore they should matter to us. Now, I want to pray with you this morning. I believe that there are two sons in this story, like we've read, and I hope that I've painted you a picture this morning. And I believe that all of us have a chance to decide for ourselves. Some of us, you don't relate to that first son. Man, I, I can tell you, I, I can't relate to that first son. I've been saved since I was four years old. I've, ser- I've been in church and served God pretty much all of my life. Have I made mistakes? Yes, I've made plenty of mistakes. I'm not perfect. But I've never wandered off and squandered my living or anything like that. I've always served God. Even when I was, quote unquote, not necessarily living for him, I still loved God. I never hated him. But maybe I could probably relate to the second son a little bit. Maybe I look at that and I say, you know, why do these people deserve it? Maybe not now, but in the past, I've probably looked and said, I don't get it. How can God love them for all that they've done? They've rejected him. They've turned their back from him. Maybe even somebody that you have issues with. You're like, man, I just can't get along with them. But yet God shows you that who they are and what their life is like. And then he says, look, my love is for everybody. My arms are open for everybody. I'm going to greet the worst sinner as much as I'm going to greet the greatest saint. Because God's love is that wide. 
He stretches out his arm for us, and he welcomes us in. And that's the way we too should be, that no matter who comes in, no matter what they look like, no matter how they smell, no matter where their background's from, whether they're raised in church or whether they were raised in the world, it doesn't matter. We should be the church that opens our arms, welcomes people in, loves those that, are, that need Jesus, and we open our lives up to receive them into our hearts and in our lives. So my question is, if you've served Jesus for a while now, open up your hearts and welcome those that come searching for an answer. We have to reach across the aisle and show them the love that Jesus shown to us. Can we pray? Lord, I just thank you for allowing us to be here today. God, I pray for everyone that's here. I, I hope that this story has resonated with somebody here. Whatever they're facing, whatever they're going through right now, maybe there's somebody that's struggling in their faith, trying to decide if this faith is for them. I hope that I've painted the picture that God loves them so much that he would even humiliate himself. To come and to open our, his arms to us and to welcome us into his kingdom. Maybe there's somebody here that's struggling with outreach or reaching outside these walls or looking at people differently than, that are different than them. Maybe people that haven't been taught like them. Whatever it is, God, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, help us to receive. Help us to receive anyone that, that may be lacking. God, you created us for something more than we could ever imagine. God, you created us to be something fantastic, something great. You created us to be significant for the kingdom, and everybody here has a role that they have to play. And so, God, it's time for us to step up into that role and to do our part. And it begins by welcoming those in. God, you think we're valuable. You think we're worth a whole lot. And you love us so much. You sent your son to die on a cross for us so that we could live, so that we could have this life, a life that's far greater than anything we could ever imagine. And so, God, I pray this morning, God, that those that are here would open up their hearts to receive you. And God, those that have already received you, I pray they open up their hearts to receive those that have not yet received you. Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask a question this morning. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised, you from, raised Jesus from the dead, You'll be saved. It means every sin forgiven, washed away as if it never happened. Today you recognize that you need His grace. You need His forgiveness. You need change. It's not something that you can earn. You don't deserve it, but it's freely given to you, and that's why you're here today. It's time to say yes today by faith. Give Jesus your life. And if this is you, I want you to say this prayer after me. Can we all say this prayer together? Let's bow our heads. Say, Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner.
I confess that I need a Savior. Today I give my heart to you. Come into my life and make me clean. I want to serve you. I give my life to you. I'm no longer my own. But I am yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you said that prayer? Be sure to let someone know. If you're at home and you said that prayer, be sure to let us know. We want to help you in your spiritual journey. I don't believe that this is a sprint to the finish line, right? It's a marathon. And we want to walk this journey with you. I'm going to ask our ushers. They'll be at the back of the sanctuary this morning. We're about a third of the way to paying for our paint job on the van. If you're planning on giving through this project, please be sure to turn that in soon. Also, if you'd like to help with any of the other projects that you can see, we've been doing a lot around here. <laughs> we're going to, here in the next few weeks, we've got to get somebody out to give us an estimate on changing the carpet on the stage. And uh, so we'll, but we'll make sure that it gets to wherever, you, wherever it needs to go. <clears throat> I want to make some announcements. Youth tonight at 6. Also, we're hosting one night of uh, this year's 5 North, 5 South camp meeting. It's going to be April uh, 4th at 7 p.m. And all of you are invited to attend. We'll be asking some of you to help greet, work in the nursery, different, different jobs. Our speaker this year is Jonathan Thacker. And so you don't want to miss this service. It's going to be a great service. Uh, the next night, Tuesday night, it's going to be at Ozark First Assembly. And uh, so we kind of do a combined, do one there, one here. So everybody's invited and welcome to come. Also, if you ordered a ticket for Shonda Pierce, today is the last day to pay for your ticket. Any tickets not paid for will be resold tomorrow. Please see Becky after service to take care of this. And also, I want to ask each of you to begin thinking about who you can invite to Easter service. We're setting a goal this year to see 100 people in attendance Easter Sunday. And I'm going to be starting a series on Easter Sunday called the Easter Challenge. And after service... We're going to have a glow-in-the-dark Easter egg hunt for all the kids in the student center. So we need your help. We need you to pray uh, for our Easter service. We need people to purchase Easter eggs and stuff those eggs. And then we need people to invite someone to church this Easter. I believe that, if, that, I believe that we can have a packed house this Easter. Amen? So I'm asking you if you could help. God is doing some amazing things in this place and I can't even begin to if I listed everything that God's been doing we'd be here all night God's just been doing some great stuff and we've been making some changes some well needed changes you know in the 13 years that I've been here this is the first time that we've changed the look of the stage and we've been in a it's been over a year process and we still got a ways to go we're not even close Uh, when I was painting this week this uh these walls i was like man it's a big job i think i even told kelly several times i know we painted the hallways out there several years ago and that was a big job too but i just never realized the, we did that in like two or three days this we did it all in one day and and uh, i never realized the enormity of this task and uh i've got very strong calves now going up and down a ladder so <laughs> Uh, but thank you, thank you, thank you. We've had so many people help so far, and we still have work that needs to be done. And uh, I know it's just uh, 
you know, it's our sanctuary. And, and you say, well, how is that going to help to build God's kingdom? First of all, this is God's house. And it should be a number one priority to take care of God's house. I understand our bodies are the temple. I, I understand that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be super spiritual here. But I'm telling you, this is God's house. And if we don't take care of what God gives us, why would God give us anything more? Amen? And so we're going to do the best that we can to take care of what God gives us. And so we're, we're uh, doing some things. We've got some more things. We want to put some new lights in. We want to put some stage lights on. We want a new carpet. We're going to raise the stage a little and, and do some different things to enhance and to make it better than it has been in the past. And so let me just say to everyone that's been working on this, thank you, thank you, thank you. To all of those that have given, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't tell you enough thanks for what you've done. It's been amazing. And not just here on this project, but everything that is in our church. Can I tell you that it takes a lot of people to make this thing function and work? Not just on Wednesday nights, not just on Sunday mornings, not just throughout the week, but just every single day. It, it takes a lot of people to do a lot of different things. And so thank you for doing the job, the calling that God has placed upon your life. Now let's continue to invite and let, and let people come to see what God wants to continue to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray over this offering. God, we just come to you right now. Pray that you bless this offering. Bless each and every person that gives. God, help us to go forward and to do the work that you've called us to do, to be who you want us to be. We give you all the praise, and we give you all the glory, and we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Y'all have a wonderful week. Uh, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, be here. Uh, Next Sunday, Pastor Bill will be preaching for you. Uh, My family is going to be on vacation. We may or may not be here Sunday. We're not for sure yet, so it depends on travel. So... Uh, but but he's gonna he's gonna take care. I got it. I think I'm leaving it in pretty good hands. So uh, so we'll see y'all uh, next week or sometime.